people of God rejoiced and said, Amen. Thank you, worship choir. What a wonderful way to worship today. Thank you. Thanks be to God. Would you bow with me as we pray together? May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The story is told that when Mozart was a young man living at home with his father, Leopold, he enjoyed playing a little trick on his dad. After a night out in Vienna with his friends, Mozart would return home to find his father asleep. Mozart would then sit down at the family's piano and loudly play a rising scale of notes, only to shop one note short of completing the scale. Satisfied with the knowledge of what would inevitably come next, Mozart would go to bed. As Mozart was laying in bed, falling asleep, his dad would invariably begin to wake with the unfinished scale tossing in his head. He could not bear the lack of resolution. Eventually, he would drag himself out of bed, make his way to the piano, and play the last note. Only then could he go to sleep. Perhaps you've experienced something similar. A song pops up on the radio or on your playlist, one that you don't like. You turn it off and try to get it out of your head, but it keeps playing in your mind long after the music has ended. This does not happen because it's a song you don't like. It can happen with a song you love. There's actually something scientific about it. Psychologists call this the Zikarnik effect, in which uncompleted tasks or songs tend to pop in one's mind over and over again. This effect is named for Bluma Zikarnik, an early 20th century psychologist from Russia. This understanding says that our brains actually keep reminding us of things that need to be done. Have you ever tried to go to sleep at night and your to-do list is just playing through your mind and you're restless and you cannot get to sleep? Well, that's why. This can cause us to squeeze out the margin in our schedules uh, and, and partake in multitasking so that by the end of the day, we feel that we've checked all the boxes and we have left nothing undone. What we often end up with is a constant battle within our minds to be efficient. When something is efficient, it means to achieve our intended outcome by using the fewest resources available. In other words, to be efficient is to do more with less. This is not a bad thing. Who doesn't want to get more miles per gallon in your car or to get more groceries, especially these days, out of your dollar? So efficiency is not a bad thing. However, we can fall into the trap of trying to be efficient all the while losing our effectiveness. To be effective is to achieve our intended purpose, to make a lasting difference 
in someone or in something. Maybe it's in your community, for example. Jesus certainly did a lot with a little. He was the master of what we would call efficiency, multiplying something small with exponential results. But Jesus' ministry and mission, his, it was not efficiency, but to be effective and to make an eternal difference in the lives of others. That's our big idea. He did a lot with a little, but his mission was not efficiency, but to be effective, to make an eternal difference in the lives of others. Today's story that we'll read in a moment causes us to ask the question, have I made a difference in the lives of others who are around me, my family, my friends, my church members, people who are in need? Have I helped them to experience the life-changing power of God through a relationship with Jesus? Are we willing to take the time necessary to understand and empathize with others instead of just hurrying on by trying to check all of the boxes so that we don't leave something unfinished? Like me, perhaps you've sacrificed effectiveness on the altar of efficiency so focused on not leaving anything incomplete or undone that we forget our main focus, the needs of others who are around us. One of my seminary professors said that ministry is always going to leave something undone. You will never have enough hours in the day to complete the tasks of ministry. And you, you probably have heard that said many times. But today our aim is to think about what it means to be efficient and then what it means to be effective and to focus our minds on the effectiveness of our ministry, not just trying to get things finished. In today's story, it's Jesus' miracle of feeding the multitudes. The Bible tells us he fed 5,000, but it also says, plus women and children, meaning they did not count women and children in that number, it was more likely three times 5,000. But this story will help us to see how we can be effective Christians on mission with God, with people at the center with purpose. The feeding of the multitudes is the only miracle that appears in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This tells us that it had a major impact on the people who witnessed it, the disciples, the gospel writers, and the first century church who heard the story passed down and told from their family members. For it to appear all four times means that it was a significant memory in the lives of the people. When we understand what was going on in Jesus' own spirit as he proceeded to this miracle, it makes us appreciate it even more, and quite frankly, appreciate Jesus himself even more. Let's read together. It's Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. I'll make a couple of comments along the way. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. 
And hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the town. Let me just pause there for just a minute. When he heard what had happened, you might say, Pastor, what happened? If we read just the chapter previous, chapter 13, you'll know the story that John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, dear friend, was wrongly executed by Herod Antipas. It was a foolish decision. John the Baptist was not. And as you read the other accounts of this miracle in the other Gospels, you'll notice that Herod was also after Jesus. That's what had happened. Not only was Jesus grieved, but he was trying to move away from this persecution because he knew that he had some tasks before him. So he got in a boat and he withdrew privately to a solitary place. It's up near Bethsaida. And if you look at a Bible map, it's up at the very top northwest of the Sea of Galilee. So he tries to get away just to be by himself, to have prayer and reflection, to grieve as we would want to. But he had gained so much popularity that people from the villages, they, they saw which direction he was going, and they, and they began to run to follow him. And they were waiting on him when he landed in the boat. In verse 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. One more pause. Remember the word compassion. You heard Ms. Kiera talk about it in the children's message. The main point of this miracle is compassion. There are other aspects to it, but Jesus came out of his solitary time, his prayer time, his grieving to minister to these people out of his compassion. He had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. So they're giving Jesus orders here. Jesus replied, verse 16, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring the loaves and fishes to me, Jesus said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave the loaves to the disciples as well as the fishes, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In hearing this wonderful story, it begs the question, how can we be effective as Christians? What can we learn from Jesus and the way that he ministered to people out of compassion that we might be effective in our witness, in our ministries, as we are out in the community, whether it's in school or on our university campus, 
in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, at the HOA meeting, at the grocery store, etc. How can we be effective as Christian people? And I have four ways that we can go about doing that today. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down in your bulletin if you'd like. But the first is simply the purpose of the parable, I believe, and that is to see with eyes of compassion. You'll notice that in verse 14, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot. And then it says, when he landed, he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them. Jesus saw them with eyes of compassion. It reminds me of the passage in Genesis 16, 13, the story of Hagar and how she withdrew in the wilderness and she named God El Roy. In Hebrew, it means the God who sees me. God saw her in her need. God had compassion on her and so much so that she gave God the name, the God who sees me. I believe this is the way that Jesus lived his life and went about his ministry with eyes of compassion. He saw people and who they were, and he saw them in their need. He did that when he healed the sick, of course, when he fed the multitudes, when he forgave sinners, when interacting with people who are outcasts in society, when raising the dead, when teaching in parables to convey his message of compassion, the parable of the lost son comes to mind, of the compassionate, loving father. Or what about the story of the good Samaritan who had compassion on the man who was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road? Jesus taught with compassion. He wanted his followers to see others as he would see them. He had compassion when he prayed for others. And, of course, he had compassion on us and all who have come before and behind us when he died on the cross on our behalf. So he's, we can see others with eyes of compassion. Second, in our church, we can cultivate a spirit of innovation. I love this. The disciples said, Jesus, we need to send these folk back to the villages so that they can buy food. We have nothing to give them. We've there's just this John's gospel, this boy that has a lunch with five loaves of barley bread and two fishes. What can we do with that? So Jesus, tell all of these folks to go home so that they can take care of themselves. And then Jesus says, uh, why don't you do something about it? You do something. I believe that Jesus is cultivating a spirit of innovation in the minds of his disciples. Thinking outside the box, how can we handle all of this with this little bit? And when they still struggled, then Jesus said, let me have the loaves and the fishes. Tell everybody to sit down. And he had them sit down in rows of 150s, reminiscent of the way that the people of Israel sat down in, uh, and went around in camps, organized as they marched through the desert. And then Jesus took what little there was given, five loaves and two fishes, and he blessed it. And then he broke the bread, gave it to the disciples, 
and said, go and serve. And there was enough for everyone and even 12 baskets of broken pieces that they picked up and brought back to show Jesus. It's amazing what happens when we can be innovative and not limit ourselves with right what is right in front of us. I've got a couple of stories about how this happens in the corporate world, where companies foster or help to cultivate this kind of mentality in the workplace. Frito-Lay did that. In the mid-'80s, they were going through a difficult time, so their CEO, Roger Enrico, encouraged an initiative for their 300,000 employees to act like an owner. And Richard Montañez, who had dropped out of school in fourth grade after struggling with his English, uh, was the custodian, and he was earning $4 an hour at that point. But he heard Enrico's announcement and took it as an opportunity. So he called up the CEO's office, and the CEO agreed to talk with him with, with Montañez. He had been picking up his snacks at a local store when he noticed that there was no product, product catering to Latinos. So he managed to get some Cheetos from the assembly line that had not been seasoned yet, and he took them home and he prepared his homemade spice mix. And these would become flaming Hot Cheetos. And there was a movie made about Montañez that came out this June. If you're interested, you can just go on Hulu, and, or you could probably find it on YouTube and, and re read the story. But the CEO said to him, put your mop down, you're coming with us. Matanya's story has become famous, and uh, Frida, uh, Flaming Hot Cheetos, by the way, they're hot. Uh, I do like them, but they are hot. They've been one of the most successful product launches in company history, and it has amassed a personal fortune for Matanya's as of the, this particular writing of some $20 million, but the, the, the largest selling product that they have. It's amazing. And then two other very quick ones. Did you know that Happy Meals were created in 1977 for the McDonald's Corporation by a man named Dick Brahms? He was a St. Louis regional manager, and he wanted to try a new meal just for kids. And he picks, pitched his box to management, and they loved it. They're loving it. And they sell three million Happy Meals every day just because they allowed somebody to be innovative in their company. And then the last one is Post-it Notes. Uh, there was an employee by the name of Art, uh, uh, Art Fry who learned of Spencer Silver's invention of a glue that would not stick permanently. And they created Post-it Notes. And Post-it Notes brings 3M a billion dollars in sales each year. May we be innovative as a church. Today we tried the Lord's Supper a little earlier in the service, and that's innovative. It was something new many of us hadn't done before. We had you come forward, something new. We've been experimenting with different uh, ways to bring in new elements in our worship as we are journeying together. And I think that's wonderful. So may we continue to cultivate a spirit of innovation 
as Jesus encouraged that with his own disciples. Did they always get it? No. Do I always get it? Surely not. But I'd rather have that with some failure than never try to change anything at all. Third, care for the needs of others. This is so evident in what Jesus did. People were hungry, and he cared for them. Very simple. Knowing that he was a good shepherd, he did what any good shepherd would do. He saw a need, and he met it. He put others first, out of compassion. The one who refused to turn stone to bread when Satan tempted him in the wilderness turned five loaves and two fishes into enough to feed thousands. He put himself aside and others first because he cared for them. That's effectiveness, my friends. Fourth, this story reminds us to trust God with what we've already got. Each of us has something to give. That little boy, as recorded in John chapter 6, gave his lunch. And Jesus took it and multiplied it. And he took something that someone else gave. And then he enlisted his helpers to distribute it. He didn't do it all himself. He empowered others to help in his ministry. That's what happens when you and I trust God with what we've already been given. The Bible tells us that everything comes from God anyway. Whether Jesus would have sent the people all home to get food from their villages, from the marketplace, or whether he multiplied it there, ultimately everything comes from God. But Jesus performed this miracle to make a difference at that time out of his compassion. He put it in his ha the hands of his disciples, and they collaborated in performing the miracle. You and I can collaborate every day to bring out the miraculous in the name of Jesus, giving him the glory. Author and speaker John Maxwell says collaboration is key. He tells of a short piece written by Pastor Chuck Swindoll entitled No Place for Islands. Listen. In part, it says, nobody is a whole chain. Each one is a link. But take away one link and the chain is broken. Nobody is a whole team. Each one is a player. But take away one player and the game is forfeited. Nobody is a whole orchestra. Each one is a musician. But take away one musician and the symphony is incomplete. Nobody is a whole play. Each one is an actor. But take away one actor and the performance suffers. Nobody is a whole hospital. Each one is a part of the staff. But take away one person, and it is not long before the patient will know. You guessed it. We need each other. You need someone, and someone need you. Isolated islands, we are not. God always collaborates with people. And whatever we have to offer to bring about the miraculous. And that's 